everyone, I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and we're bringing you something a little different today on a special presentation from The Takeaway. Today, you're gonna to be hearing excerpts from our live celebration of the life and work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Now, the event is in collaboration with the Apollo Theater, WNYC, The Takeaway, and the March on Washington Film Festival. Over the decades, the Apollo Theater has served as a gathering place and an unofficial town hall for local community residents and people from across New York City. But this year, the continuing COVID-19 pandemic meant our celebration was virtual. And in some ways, it might feel impossible to fully celebrate Dr. King in a virtual environment. After all, the movement for racial justice and civil rights is truly a movement about being together. It's a movement marked by mass meetings in Southern churches, a movement we remember through images of marches where Dr. King linked arms with members of the communities where he worked. It's a movement where activists were beaten, bruised, and bloodied by state power that was anything but virtual. But the decision to go digital does honor another aspect of this movement, its creativity and collective action. Let's consider the Montgomery bus boycott, where Dr. King's leadership first gained national attention. For over a year, every single black person in the city of Montgomery, Alabama, refused to ride the segregated public buses. Every single person for more than a year. Now, this kind of collective action, it takes not only commitment and coordination, it also takes creativity to organize a community-free taxi service, to determine new routes to school and work, to keep up the spirits of those involved, and ultimately, to win the legal decision to desegregate. Indeed, one way to think of the movement for civil rights is as artistry, a complex composition played by multiple instruments of activism, a collage of resistance painting a new portrait of democratic possibility, a new story of America authored by all who worked and organized and sacrificed along with Dr. King. And thus, our special Uptown Hall MLK Activism in the Arts reveals the many ways the arts influenced the creative nonviolent resistance of Dr. King's activism. Now we start with the Honorable Andrew Young. Young served as mayor of Atlanta, a member of Congress from Georgia, and the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. But long before these official political roles, Andrew Young was executive director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And as head of the SCLC, he was a close friend and confidant of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Mr. Young, thank you for being here. Well, it's my privilege. So, Ambassador, I want to begin with um, with the most personal, and then we can um, sort of expand out. Help yourself. But when you think <laughs> when you think about your experience with Dr. King, maybe less um, the notion of Dr. King as the movement activist leader. Uh, but more as the person, um, I, I've heard you at times talk about him joking and clowning and, and the ways that uh, he engaged the people that he worked with. Can you reflect on Dr. King a bit for us? The, the Royal Peacock on Auburn Avenue was where most of the uh, blues and rock and roll and 
uh, the old music, uh, what they used to call the chitlin circuit. And so he'd have to pass there. He got along with everybody and everybody knew who he was. It was easy for him. He could drop on in any black community in America and carry on a conversation and be comfortable with all the folk that were hanging out because he hung out on the streets. Everybody knew he was the preacher's son and they treated him that way with great respect. And it was as though even growing up, he was somebody special uh, because his father was not only the pastor of one of the largest churches, but his grandfather had been the pastor of the same church. So it was, he had a generational priority <laughs> on Auburn Avenue. Auburn Avenue was also in his time uh, where the, all of the soldiers that were in the South from all over uh, the country, we had Fort Benning 80 miles to the South, uh, Fort Gillum, uh, Fort McPherson. There were about six army bases uh, within two hours of uh, Atlanta. And so the, on the weekends, Auburn Avenue, until early Sunday morning, uh, belonged to the nightclubs and the soldiers. Uh, and then <laughs> it was almost as when the sun came up, uh, then that was God's territory and the churches took over. So he lived a full life with all kinds of wonderful people. And he loved them. He respected him, them. They knew who he was. And so anywhere we went, when you'd get on the main black street in the community, he was at home. I love hearing these reflections. Um, you know, there are, there are obviously so many images um, of, of Dr. King, but I will say my favorite photograph of him is the, um, of him in Chicago during the Chicago campaign playing pool, um, on the South Side. And there is something about seeing him in that relaxed atmosphere, seeing his humanity, his manhood, his, yeah. as you've described it, that all American black boyhood, now manhood, even in the context of all the serious work he was doing. Yeah. Well, it, but it was the seriousness of the work that came from the people on the streets that he grew up with. Like he used to quote this guy that uh, was uh, used to hang outside the barbershop and uh, play a guitar. And uh, he had this song been down so long that down don't bother me. <laughs> and he'd sing it that way sometimes. And then other times he, he would sing it been down so long, getting up, don't cross my mind. Uh, and he quoted from these blues singers off the street in his sermons, and and he, he he felt what they were talking about, and he knew that it was his challenge uh, to get them to rise up, and and we did. What you've just done, I think, is so critical by linking that blues aesthetic um, uh, in the context of the movement. It's not just that the arts fueled the movement, but 
the movement was itself a, a kind of art, right? That it was a, a a lyric, it was a composition, it was bringing together these parts and understanding that you had, you know, maybe upper middle class students and you had, you know, a 78 year old fearless leader, right? Um, together in those moments. Well, the only place we could meet was in the church. And um, before, usually the meeting started at eight o'clock. Well, that meant that the preachers got there at eight o'clock. The old folk came straight from work or five or six o'clock. And they started moaning and singing these old long meter hymns and spirituals. Uh, And they sort of carried on. They got the church warmed up. Uh, And uh, then uh, around 6.30 or 7, uh, the high school students came in and they started singing freedom songs and clapping their hands. And, and you, you had an integration of the generations uh, every night uh, in a church in Birmingham, Alabama, or in Selma, Alabama. Ambassador, as we as we complete our interview, and thank you for um, your generosity with your time today, um, I'm wondering if you can just give us a word. I know many people in this moment um, with the COVID pandemic, with the continuing um, divisions in our country, are feeling hopeless. Um, what would be the lesson from the movement and from Dr. King that you might offer us about how to stay resilient and hopeful, um, even as we resist the the worst impulses of our nation? Well, I think that um, I think where we found our strength was in the heritage of our ancestors. Uh, that M- Martin. Whenever, I mean, it could be anywhere in the in, in a message. Um, he'd say things like uh, black men and women in slavery had more faith than uh, people in the Old Testament. They uh, they straightened out Jeremiah's question mark into an exclamation point because they didn't ask, is there a bomb in Gilead? They said there is a bomb in Gilead that heals a sin-sick soul. There's a bomb in Gilead that makes the wounded whole. So when I get discouraged and think my work's in vain, then comes the Holy Spirit that revives my soul again, because there is a bomb in Gilead. And he could start preaching like that, uh, you know, sitting around in in a hotel room. And the, the distance between his spiritual life uh, and the movement was non-existent. The, his, the movement came out of his spiritual life. Uh, there was something in him that synthesized, uh, like an orchestra conductor, uh, the culture of the black church, black folk in the, sh- in the pool halls, uh, people in the farms, uh, and, and he, he did it with a rhythm, uh, that made you have to pat your feet and make you want to jump up and shout. And it was that affirmation of faith, um, uh, that got us through 
as we say, many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Uh, it was grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. The Honorable Andrew Young. Now, we're bringing you some of the great conversations that were part of a virtual live event with the Apollo, all in celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. Now, I had the opportunity to speak with artist, collector, CEO, and founder of Black Art in America, Najee Dorsey. I asked Najee about the ways that artists and creators contribute to Black folks' movements for racial justice. Art is our visual language. Art chronicles and documents our history. It documents our journey. It also plays an active role in mobilizing people, you know, touching them in a, in a spiritual, a visceral way to get them to take action. It's how we see the world. I mean, hopefully enough people live with art and been exposed to art. And art has tremendous impact on, on individuals and also our culture. I mean, it's one of the first things when you take a look at it from a historical standpoint that people try to, you know, fight and get rid of the artist because the artist mix and mingle with all aspects of society. And, and, and so artists are considered to be some of the most dangerous in terms of free thinkers and progressives in any community. Part of what I also want to do here is not presume that the movement for racial justice always looks like precisely these kind of um, high profile movements. So I want to go to Memphis and I want to go to the work of environmental okay. racism and the work that you've done there. Well, a few years ago, and this is like 20 some years ago, but a few years ago, I created this body of work about poor people's campaign, basically a jumping off point where I use children as a way to reflect in, in terms of how we live in plain sight of a lot of social injustice and environmental racism in our communities. Now, last year I was watching a, a video, a documentary from Vice that chronicled uh, the Boxwood community in South Memphis fight against Valero pipeline. They was looking to run a, a pipeline through the waterways that was going to impact the black community and, and also subsequently take a lot of uh, black owners land. And so I ended up taking out a billboard directly across the street from Valero to lend my voice in this particular struggle for solidarity with the, with the protesters that was there on the ground in Memphis fighting this fight. Now, within a matter of days, the story got picked up by Forbes magazine. It also got picked up by MLK 50, who is continuing to keep the, the legacy alive of, ML, of Dr. King and also one of the local papers. And shortly within a couple of days, um, the company announced that they were no longer going to move forward with this proposed pipeline that they had been fighting for all this time. That's a small role. That's a small mm. active thing that I was able to take part of that, that I'm really that I'm really proud of because you know, it was timely, it was needed, and, you know, it was enough of us small guys, you know, basically just fighting a good fight against a major corporation. And and it's one of the few instances where I think that we actually won that battle. When you say I took out a billboard, I feel like there are those who will think, um, you know, it's a billboard of words that says, you know, don't build the pipeline. But of course, it's art. So, so describe the piece a bit. Yeah, so the piece that I used was ice cream melting, which was a young woman holding a SpongeBob SquarePants ice cream sickle. Uh, but in the background, there's a oil refinery. So it was in just a position, the artwork was in just a position to the actual oil refinery that's in Memphis, right off the interstate across the street from this particular neighborhood. And the billboard was 14 feet by 48 feet. So it was a, a, a very large presence for the hundreds of thousands of people that, that drove uh, in Memphis on the interstate. Now, granted, this is literally, you know, less than five miles away from the Lorraine Hotel. It's, mm -hmm. it's it, you know, it, it, it's in the tradition of what Dr. King was doing way back in the day 
when he went to go do the uh, the march for the uh, for the sanitation workers during that time. So, you know, we're, we're following in that tradition. Absolutely. And I, I just, you know, for me, this is part of what captures um, the value of visual art. I mean, again, you know, you could put up a, a billboard that has a statistic about the environmental degradation associated uh, with this or even the health impacts on children. But seeing that baby girl with her hair braided back, holding that, you know, SpongeBob ice cream while you see just the belching out, right? The That visual representation. And so it's so familiar, right? Like, like who doesn't know that little girl who wasn't that little girl and yet to see what we'd be willing to do to her world. Yeah. So many of us live in plain sight. I mean, I, I growing up, I live, you know, within a mile of a landfill and I, and I really didn't think anything about it. So, so many of us, because you're going to find these things in poor communities and black communities on the other side of the tracks where we live. And that's the main reason why uh, they were going to try to run the pipeline through the black community because they felt that they could because they didn't, you know, they didn't have we didn't have the power as a community to basically fight against these types of travesties. So, you know, it's consistent. So that's the thing that we do as as artists, as individual artists. And as a company, there's there's a number of things that we do to um uh, with Black Heart in America to to basically fight the good fight as well. You drew our attention here to Memphis. Um, and obviously, Memphis is where Dr. King is assassinated. Um, it's also, when I think about the photography that came out of the Memphis sanitation workers' strikes, those um, placards, I am a man, those are not art in the high art sense, and yet they also become part of the visual representation of our history, of our movement, and as you said, of the stories that have to be told. So do a little something for me here and take your time, it's fine. Um, help me think about what counts as art and maybe particularly what counts as black art. That's a very iconic image. Uh, I think it's thinking about Bill Withers. Um, uh, when I think of that statement, I am a man, you know, it, I actually got a piece of art in my collection that speaks to that by George Hunt, who was from Memphis. You know, these are these are the things that, you know, that that speaks to us. Like, I think art can be so many different things. It's not necessarily only a painting, but it's a way of it's a way of thinking and it's a way of seeing the world. Maybe it's something that 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 empowers us. And I think that's become a cultural icon. I'm a man. It's a bold and beautiful statement. What is art? You know, art for me is everything from the paintings, the music, to the food, you know, to the time that we spend with each other. I think to, to even giving thought and being purposeful in our social media engagement. For, for me, I live an art-filled life. You know, I mean, the art, you know, the work that's, that's, that's on the wall. So it could be a quilt, you know, it could be a poem. No, it's, 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 it's so many different things. Najee Dorsey, artist, collector, CEO, and founder of Black Art in America. Our next conversation is about activism through literature. WNYC host Brian Lair sat down with award-winning children's book author Jacqueline Woodson. You know, I think it's accurate to say we live in a time of activism for social justice, for racial justice, that's probably greater than anything since Martin Luther King's day, since the 1960s. Is it influencing either what you read or what you write in the last couple of years? It's definitely made me think harder about 
the stories I want to read. I want to read stuff where people have something to say. say I, you know, I've never been engaged with stories where there's a whole lot of navel gazing anyway, but I am much more intentional about what I read. I feel like my time is shorter too. Um, but in terms of my own writing, I've always been committed to social justice. So that hasn't changed so much. Finding the right language, finding the love language that people can hear. And I think now more than ever, there's so much noise, right? There's so much outside noise. And there's also the pushback against that love language and that pushback against social justice. So I do find myself being much more thoughtful and intentional about how I'm telling stories. And again, like I said, what I'm reading. Jacqueline, one of the things going on these days, as I'm sure you know, might be called a war on writing with attempts to censor the 1619 Project, what some people call critical race theory, even if they misinterpret entirely and sometimes willfully what it is. Uh, I wonder if you are feeling that as a writer, either with respect to your own work or just as you look out at the world? It's such a great question. I mean, first and foremost, I have to give my flowers to Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's holding down the fort on so much of the pushback and hatred she's getting for telling the truth. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm censored in a lot of places. And, and one thing I think about is, if I was growing up today, would I have gotten all of the class learning I got about Martin Luther King Jr., right? Because people would say this is something that we don't want taught in our classrooms because it might make our white kids feel bad. And that's that's what the dialogue is, right? What That's what the argument is. So books like the story of Ruby Bridges are being struck from reading lists. Brown Girl Dreaming has been challenged. My book, Brown Girl, a couple of my books, but that one was surprising to me in that it's, a, it's about American history and people are pushing back against American history told from the points of view of the um, non-white bodies that lived it. So it's exhausting. I mean, but the work has always been exhausting. And I think the only thing I can say is um, we have to keep speaking up. We have to keep um, reading those books. We have to keep demanding them in our classrooms. We have to get on the school boards because the, I mean, people on school boards are getting threatened. Their lives are getting threatened for bringing a book like the story of Ruby Bridges into the classroom. It's, it's, it's bananas, but it's also, it makes perfect sense because when this kind of change is happening, people get very fearful. And we see in this that words and books are very powerful. And for me as a writer, I just want the books to get into the hands of the young people who need them um, so that they have the tools for understanding the context of the world they're living in now. Um, so it, it's heartbreaking and it's exhausting. And it's exciting because it's about we know where the struggle is. We know what the, where the fight is. And we know the work that we need to do to make this country better. That's WNYC's Brian Lair speaking with author Jacqueline Woodson. And this is The Takeaway. NYC Now delivers the most up-to-date local news from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. With three updates a day, listeners get breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from across New York City. By sponsoring programming like NYC Now, you'll reach our community of dedicated listeners with premium messaging and an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to get in touch and find out more.
This is Melissa Harris-Perry with you for a special hour of conversations on this Martin Luther King Jr. Day 2022, along with the Apollo Theater, WNYC, and the March on Washington Film Festival. Our friend Kai Wright is the host and managing editor of WNYC's The United States of Anxiety. And he sat down with the president of Color of Change, Rashad Robinson, to discuss the role of celebrity in empowering social justice movements. We know the huge role some of some of the Hollywood stars of the past, Black Hollywood, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, played in the civil rights movement. Talk about that a little bit, like what role those people played in the civil rights movement and who's playing that role now? Yeah, when I think about uh, uh, Harry Belafonte, uh, Ozzie Davis and Ruby Dee and Sidney Poitier, I oftentimes think about the deep respect they had with building up infrastructure, the role that they had directly with the activists on the ground, the folks who were leading organizations, building up and recognizing their role in the ecosystem of, of being able to help advance change by supporting folks like Dr. King supporting uh, SNCC, supporting the organizations that Financial. were translating, yes, translating, you know, the presence and the visibility of these moments into the actual power that was needed. And, you know, there are so many, I think, current activists, you know, when we talk about the Change Hollywood effort, that effort would not have gotten off the ground without a deep collaboration with Michael B. Jordan um, and Outlier Productions, who was our partner as we launched it. I think about so much of the work we've done in Hollywood in deep partnership with folks like Ava DuVernay. I think about some of our early work in writers' rooms being sort of brought in by uh, folks like Mara Brackett-Keel, the ongoing way that activist actors like Kerry Washington and Tracy Ellis Ross and Kendrick Sampson and so many others have been able to not just support um, us at Color of Change, but so many of the other leading movement organizations and being able to help us reach more people using their narrative infrastructure to help um, elevate our demands and bring more people in. I think about the work we've done, you know, with folks like Common and others. And all of that, I think, is incredibly important um, to sort of recognizing the deep role that sort of cultural advocates have in helping people see the world and seeing what needs to be done and the role that activists have in helping to build the strategies and the advocacy and the efforts to power that type of change. It's funny because I think the popular conversation, I don't know, for some people, the popular conversation is like, oh, we don't have the kind of activism amongst black celebrities and black leaders that we used to have there's this nostalgia for it, but even as, and, and I admit, I, you know, I'm, I'm guilty a little of that, that thinking myself, but even just hearing you tick through those names and thinking about it, it's actually quite a robust moment. Um, we have to build the infrastructure, build the platforms that allow people to be part of these efforts, give people the pathways to be powerful on these issues. And part of what we've tried to do with Change Hollywood is not just say that the industry has to change, but to actually put forward sort of uh, five clear demands and under those actually hold the industry accountable. And so what we've done is we've pushed studios, agencies, and we've pushed those inside of Hollywood to actually commit to this roadmap of change. And this roadmap actually gives folks who say Black Lives Matter a clear pathway to start actually moving towards making that a reality. Because far too often we get a lot of words. And what our goal at Color of Change is to constantly move people from words to action, to move people beyond statements into actually doing something that's real and clear, and then to put the mechanisms in place to evaluate it. Otherwise, it's all talk, and it doesn't actually get us anywhere. And, you know, part of, I think, how the world will look 
five, 10, 15, 20 years from now is not just sort of our hopes and dreams, because that wasn't what we should take away from the 60s and the 70s and civil rights. What we should take away was the deep level of work and strategy and effort in making those dreams, in making that vision, in making those demands actually possible, in translating what we talk about at Color of Change as presence and visibility into power. And power is the ability to change the rules. And sometimes those are the written rules of policy, and sometimes those are the unwritten rules of culture. But always the work to change the rules gets us to a place where we can look back and see what we've actually accomplished. That's Kai Wright speaking with Rashad Robinson from Color of Change. Next up is Garrett McQueen, executive producer and co-host of the Triloquy podcast and president of Trillworks Media. Now, Garrett is an equity consultant, guest speaker, curator, and presenter at the intersections of race and classical music. WNYC's Jamie Floyd asked Garrett to provide a history lesson on activism and activists of the genre. The intersection of black activism and classical music is a very long history filled with the names of far more people that I could share with you here today, but I'll offer a few examples of what this has looked like over the past couple centuries and how it all remains relevant today. So first and foremost, I have to acknowledge that activism among classical musicians predates Black Lives Matter, it predates the civil rights movement, and even America as a country. Way back around the year of 1729, there was a man born on a slave ship headed from the African continent to England. His name was Ignatius Sancho. Now, Ignatius would grow up to be one of the leading figures in the abolitionist movement over in England and was even the very first black person to vote in a British election back in 1774. So in addition to being that sort of activist and even an author, Ignatius Sancho was a composer of a vast number of compositions for string orchestra. Now, these pieces weren't regularly performed for many, many, many years, but today there are ensembles all around the world that use his music as a means of remembering the slave trade as a global scourge, not just one that impacted the United States. It's a dark part of our human history that was overcome through the work of all sorts of people, musicians included. Now, if you fast forward about 100 years or so, you can find another black Briton whose work lived at the intersection of classical music and activism. He was a man named Samuel Coleridge. Taylor. He only lived to be uh, 37 years old, but he managed to get a lot done in his relatively short life. First and foremost, Samuel Coleridge Taylor was a broadly respected composer in his own right. He had a number of pieces that really hit big back in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. One of those works was called Hiawatha's Wedding Feast. That work was such a big hit that it led him to an American tour so that he could Uh, learn more about the diaspora and that fed into his uh, beliefs when it comes to black people and black civil rights. In the year of 1900, he was the youngest participant at the first Pan-African Conference. And then in 1904, he was received by President Roosevelt at the White House. Today, his music uh, continues to be performed and celebrated. And in my opinion, his music serves as one of the greatest artifacts that we have when it comes to exploring the intersectional history of Pan-African African thought and Western classical music. 
Now, of course, it wasn't just the men who were doing the good work over history. In 1913, a woman named Margaret Bonds was born. Her father was an activist and her mother was a musician. So she grew up thinking about those ideas in tandem. Her most famous work is a tune that many folks know called He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. But a work that lots of folks are returning to is her 1964 Montgomery Variations. This work was written in honor of Martin Luther King Jr. and the tireless work done by black folks down in Alabama fighting for civil rights and specifically voting rights. She also has a Christmas oratorio called The Ballad of the Brown King, uh, which is also beginning to get more and more play in concert settings. Now, I will be remiss if I didn't mention Margaret Bonds's teacher, the folks she learned music from. Uh, as an aside, you know, I was really lucky to get to study with someone black in the early years of my development, and so was Margaret Bonds. It proved very impactful. As a high school student, Margaret Bond studied piano and composition with two black musicians, in fact, a man named William Levy Dawson and a black woman named Florence Price. So I'd like to share a short excerpt from a holiday show that I produced for Kwanzaa back in 2020 to give everyone a taste of her music. This excerpt features a bit of Florence Price's single movement piano concerto as performed by the Chicago Sinfonietta featuring pianist Karen Walwyn. Very beautiful, uh, Garrett McQueen. Let me ask you how the continued legacy of racial justice and activism uh, in classical music is being engaged today, if it is. Yeah, it's very important to understand that the work of fighting for black rights through Western classical music has never died, thankfully. So, and there are many ensembles, institutions, and even more individuals who are continuing this fight. The first group I have to name is the Gateways Festival Orchestra. The Gateways Music Festival was founded back in 1993 in Winston-Salem, North Carolina by Armenta Hummings Dumasani. Uh, the inaugural concert actually included a violin concerto featuring Louis Farrakhan on solo violin, something that a lot of folks don't know. Well, Armenta later took the organization to Rochester, New York in 1995. Uh, but in addition to the Gateways Music Festival, I have to mention the incredible work that's been happening in the world of opera, including the Metropolitan Opera's premiere of Fire, Shut Up In My Bones, which marked their very first staging of an opera by a black composer. Now, on the activist side of opera, I'm really proud to be a leadership council member of the Black Opera Alliance, which works to get more black voices, more black perspectives, and even more black compositions on opera stages across the country, just so that things like that isn't a one-off, but something that becomes really uh, normalized in the field. Additionally, institutions like the American Composers Forum and New York's own American Composers Orchestra have shifted in recent years toward racial equity. So it's really exciting and there's a lot going on. Then let me ask you how people can help to continue the momentum of achieving racial equity in the world of classical music. What I see as the greatest means of continuing the momentum is acknowledging the Negro spiritual as America's first classical music. 
we have to understand that with the exception of musical traditions codified by indigenous people, there's really nothing more musically American than the spiritual. So as the spiritual evolved over the generations, it was separated from the musical traditions codified by folks who were not black and in turn deemed as something different than classical music. But I believe that we all have to reconsider black music and all of its iterations since the spiritual as something classical. Not only will this inspire more black activism from more of our communities, but it'll also transform the genre of so-called classical music, as I like to say, into something that reflects more of who we are as a human race today and in the future. That was WNYC's Jamie Floyd speaking with Garrett McQueen. Now we're rounding out this hour with one last conversation from the virtual live event that took place this year, once again due to COVID restrictions. WNYC's host of All of It, Allison Stewart, is joined by stage and film actress, writer and director, Trezana Beverly, and the artistic director of the National Black Theater, Jonathan McCrory. Trezana, I'm going to start with you. How is theater uniquely positioned to address issues of civil rights? Because theater is social. Yeah. Theater, is, theater is a social window to the world. And everything that theater does is social. And theater also reflects the politics of the era that it lives in, the generation that lives in that era. I would just uplift that. Theater becomes very, theater is an essential aspect to that gathering catalytic momentum when we actually talk about social justice and we actually talk about social change. And when we think about even in our current uh, current frame of uh, the George Floyd moment and um, when the civic unrest happened, theater was happening and not necessarily buildings, but on the streets. Um, the way in which people were were expressing themselves and creating um, um, creative ways of letting us know how the civic how that situation was living inside their bodies and and creating communal gatherings um, outdoors. Uh, I think that that is another way in which we can look at theater that's not so formalized. Sometimes we take the Western gaze of theater as the way in which we should be leaning forward, and I think the indigenous aspect of it, which is sometimes not in that formal space of a theatrical proscenium or in that theatrical home um, is equally as important as as the latter. Trezana, I'm going to brag on you for a moment for people who don't know that you were the first African-American actress to win Best Actress Tony for For Colored Girls in the late 70s. I think I may have seen it because I am I am pretty sure my mom and dad and I went to see it a two or three times, grew up in the area. Uh, so it is a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Uh, what did you think when you first read that play? Mm. <laughs> um, well, I loved it. Colored Girls gave a voice to African-American women who found themselves in emotionally abusive relationships. I cannot tell you the women, the, 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 the Black women who would wait for us at the stage door. Sometimes they would follow us down the street or you would see a sister sort of hovering back in the shadows and they would come up and they would say, thank you. Or can I talk to you? You follow. Mm -hmm. um, when we started doing it, 
down at the uh, New Federal Theater with Woody King. We had sisters that were falling out in the aisles. It was like church. Wow. It was a very, very transitional play, both in its structure. It broke the fourth wall. Mm -hmm. It was on Broadway with Equus. Chorus Line came after those three productions, Equus, Colored Girls, and Chorus Line, broke the fourth wall, which led to narrative theater. The set was very, very simple. And um, it, it ushered in narrative theater on Broadway. Uh, and, and, and as I said, it really strengthened the self-esteem of African-American women to speak up and not settle for uh, abusive relationships. Uh, as I said, you know, theater holds that mirror up mm. to the universe. And uh, Colored Girls was a very pivotal and transitional theater piece uh, for American theater. Jonathan, when you think about the playwrights and the creatives of the 60s and the 70s, is there anyone that particularly stands out for you or do you have any that have been really inspirational for you? I mean, in the current, in the current frame, I mean, there, there have been, a, there have been a, actually a lot, but the one that comes, that pops to the front of my mind um, at this current moment is um, Amiri Baraka. Um, and it was, and it's actually not necessarily his play, but his writing, A Call for Revolutionary Theater, um, which for me um, was an igniting force. It helped me to curate another series that I did um, in 2020 called um, A Call for Revolutionary Theater 2020, where it brought a bunch of, uh, uh, black theater professionals, um, practitioners to actually talk about and inspired by Mary Baraka's essay, um, which really leaned into the promise and to the premise of uh, what does it mean in the midst of in, in his time and at the precipice of what would become the black arts movement, um, another pandemic. He was in the midst of the pan uh, a pandemic in 1968, the, 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 the assassination of MLK, all these things that were happening one could say there's a there was a there was a marrying effect that was happening in 2020, and so then what does that what does that call that lean in of that call mean for the current black artists? Um, uh, how do we ignite uh, some of our some some of the beautiful legacy uh, torchbearers? Uh, I mean, Trezana brought up Lori Carlos, who is now um, who has transitioned. Um, and was a fierce, fierce, fierce advocate for ritualistic theater, helped to frame that space um, for ritualistic theater. So when we start to think, of, when we start to think about um, how as, a, as, a, as an emerging, um, and I still consider myself an emerging practitioner inside of this field, um, when I think about the torches that I have to hold up and, and light up and that are part of my pathology and part of my practice, um, I, think of, I think of someone like a Mary Brock, I think of someone like a Lori Carlos, and I think of also someone like um, a Paul Carter Harrison, um, all, all legacy bearers, yes, all torch yes. bearers who um, really help to shape and frame the aesthetics that I get to now play in. Um, and create the foundation for me to be able to do the work that I do today. Trezana, did you want to add to that? Uh, yes, I'm thinking of the work that uh, Woody King Jr. has done with the New Federal Theater. Mm -hmm. You know, um, most of the Black actors that you are seeing on screen now pass through the New Federal Theater. Denzel Washington, Felicia Rashad. Um, the list goes on, and the uh, the work of the Negro Ensemble, uh, the National Actors Theater, 
um, the theater uh, that uh, Sidney Poitier came out of. And those actors were very political in their in their perspective and mindset. Uh, you had Anna Lucasta, which was the first play on Broadway uh, from that from that theater company, Ozzie Davis and Ruby D. They were political activists. Um, you know, they branched out to have a theater that would speak to um, African American men and women who wanted to become professional actors, and they went on to become great actors. Um, you know, political, political theater slash activist theater, I have thought um, within the framework of Black theater can't be anything other than mm -hmm. theater that is created by activists, people who, who have a sense of the world and um, how it can change and how we can hold the mirror up to our world. That was Allison Stewart from WNYC, along with Truzana Beverly and Jonathan McCrory. Thanks so much for being part of our MLK celebration in collaboration with the Apollo Theater and the March on Washington Film Festival, along with WNYC. A huge thanks to everyone who helped to produce this event, as well as to all of our hosts and contributors. You can check out the video version of the event at WNYC.org. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this has been a special Martin Luther King Jr. celebration from The Takeaway.